I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Racial profiling is a well-known problem in law enforcement. That's why there are terms like driving while black. There have been efforts to measure how bad the problem is beyond anecdotes and lived experiences. That's been happening at both the local and state level. A 2015 California law mandated police departments to document the demographic data of every driver and pedestrian they stopped. For the first time, we're seeing the results of that law. And they are troubling. A Chronicle review found vast racial disparities in police stops across major cities, including here in the Bay Area. Not only are Black people much more likely to be stopped than white people, but they're more likely to have force used against them, and they're less likely to be found carrying contraband. It confirms what we've assumed is true. Driving while Black is still a real problem, despite the momentum from 2020, the year that cast a big spotlight on the high-profile police stops that resulted in the deaths of Black people. Today on Fifth Emission, I'll chat with Chronicle reporters Dustin Gardner and Susie Nielsen, who have dug into the police stop data. They've looked at what's happening across the state and how the Bay Area compares, and what police reform advocates are asking for now. Dustin, Susie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Dustin, I'd love to start with you. You both have written a story that addresses the harm of racial profiling, both in terms of broad fairness, but also in terms of personal danger and trauma. You spoke to some people who shared some of the serious consequences of their personal experiences with racial profiling. What did you hear? Yeah, so we talked to quite a few people about how profiling has affected them in their lives, you know, and there are the obvious things, you know, there's police use of force, and we'll get into some of the stats with with those issues later. Um, But just on a really personal level, you know, I talked to a couple of Black men who had faced profiling throughout their lives. Um, One of them was John Jones. He's a police activist in Oakland. Um, And he talked about, you know, how the first time he was profiled. He was 12 years old. Um, He was playing baseball outside the apartment building where he was living in East Oakland. And he hit a ball over the fence and went to retrieve it. And on, you know, when he was climbing back over the fence, two officers saw him, they grabbed him. For some reason, they thought he might've been involved in some sort of drug call nearby. And one of the officers shook him and grabbed him by the collar and called him the N-word. Um, And for Jones, that was the first of more than a dozen times that he says he's been profiled by police in his life, times when he was stopped or detained, when he hadn't committed a crime. And he just described how that experience and that repeat experience um, affected his his outlook as a, a kid. And you know, he he said that really sort of shattered his spirit as a boy and it continued into adulthood. This story was about a lot more than just, you know, the the what the statistics show. We also talked to people about those personal experiences that does it does change the outlook people have on life and it creates a lot of mistrust between police and communities. Mm-hmm. And Jones was actually the first person I interviewed for Fifth Emission. So it makes sense that you spoke to him. He's an important community voice in issues of policing. Uh and we know, as you've just described of his experience, that racial profiling is this long-standing issue. California has tried to address it. In 2015, the then-governor, Jerry Brown, signed the Racial and Identity Profiling Act, or something that's better known as RIPA. What does that law do? So the real intent of RIPA when, when this was passed back in 2015 was to, first of all, quantify the extent of racial profiling in the state. You know, some individual police departments were gathering data, but it 
but it wasn't happening statewide. Um, and so that was the first goal. And then the second goal was to come up with recommendations on how law enforcement agencies could change their practices based on the patterns of profiling that the data shows. Um, you know, but a lot of the activists that we spoke with and a lot of the experts, they said that the law has been very effective um, on the first goal in identifying the extent of profiling. But when it comes to that second step of taking measures, bold measures to, to root it out, that's the area where a lot of activists say the state just really hasn't done enough to, to, just to address some of these really um, desperate patterns. So the state is addressing that this is an issue, but it's kind of left up to local agencies to actually address the problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, all, all the agencies have to gather the data, but in terms of the steps they take to to fix the problem, to stop racial profiling, that is always determined at a local level for the most part. Um, and the RIPA board, which is made up of 16 law enforcement experts and professionals and criminal justice advocates, they recommend reforms, but ultimately... A, a local agency has to decide whether they want to implement them. In a lot of cases, it's kind of led to this patchwork of laws across the state that advocates say really isn't addressing the root of the problem. Mm -hmm. So now, Susie, I want to ask you, because you looked into some of this RIPA data and it revealed a lot of stark findings. For example, in San Francisco, black drivers and pedestrians are five to six times more likely to be stopped by police officers than white people. Tell me more about what you found once you dug into the data. So we looked at 15 different law enforcement agencies, some of the biggest in the state, um, which are now required to report their data on stops to the state. And what we found was across every department, there were very large gaps in the stop rates between Black people and white people. Um, and when you look at the Bay Area, actually, we have some of the worst disparities. So San Francisco had the highest disparity of stop rates between Black and white people. Um, as you said, you know, in San Francisco, Black people are six times as likely to be stopped as white San Franciscans. And in Oakland, the number is really similar. Um, that's not to say it isn't a problem elsewhere, but it is worse in the Bay Area than some other spots. The city of Los Angeles was comparable with San Francisco, though. It was about 5.6 times. And how does this recent data, which I know is from 2020, how does it compare to what was happening in years prior? Yeah, so we looked at the difference between 2019 and 2020 for these 15 departments. And for 11 of the 15 departments, the black-white disparity got worse. We also looked more closely at a longer timeline for San Francisco and Oakland because both of those cities have been collecting data for a fairly long time. Um, I think we looked at both from the early 2010s through now. And what we found is that San Francisco's disparity has actually gotten worse over time but Oakland's has gotten markedly better. The city actually used to stop Black people at even higher rates than it does now. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about this data comparing what happens to Black drivers and pedestrians to white people. What about other ethnic groups? So we looked at Black, white, Hispanic, Latino, and then Asian people. And consistently across most of the departments, Asian people are the group least likely to be stopped. Uh, white people are second least likely, and then Hispanic people are usually the second most likely to be stopped, and then across the board, Black people are the most likely. In addition to looking at stop rates across these departments, we also looked at the number of searches that officers did of people that they stopped. 
So, you know, say an officer stops you for a broken taillight and then asks to search your vehicle or says they need to search your vehicle. Even controlling for the number of stops, Black people were more likely to be searched once they were stopped than white people. But when we looked even closer at this data, we found something really interesting, which is that searches of Black people were less likely to yield illegal contraband, so drugs, guns, things like that, um, than searches of white people. So, Dustin, this confirms maybe a lot of what people would assume is true. Data is helpful for confirming what people have described as a long-time standing issue, but advocates say that there's a limit to data collection. Explain that to me. Yeah. So on one hand, advocates who push for RIPA, they say that this data has made the the problem very stark and clear. Um, it's put a giant spotlight on the problem. And we now know that not only is it an intractable problem, um, as Susie said, the, the disparity between white and black people stopped by police is actually widening in um, most of the state where the vast majority of people live. At the same time, advocates say that the numbers alone aren't enough, um, that quantifying the problem isn't a solution to the problem. And that, that's what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about John Jones's experience. I spoke with others from um, the NAACP and the ACLU, um, civil rights groups that worked to help write the RIPA law. And that, that was their big frustration is they feel like there has not been significant action following up with from the state legislature to take steps to make it harder for police to engage in these types of practices. And we're talking about changes beyond training and policies related to implicit bias. We're talking about policies that really limit their ability to stop people or the, the you know, the criteria they have to use to pull people over. Um, so yeah, that, that is the big frustration with a lot of advocates, I think. More with Dustin Gardner and Susie Nielsen after a quick break. How have law enforcement agencies explained the glaring racial disparities in police stops, and what do they plan to do about it? We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Susie, the data from the RIPA report is clear. Racial profiling is real and the problem is getting worse. How have law enforcement agencies explained what's happening? Yeah, so I think the disparities are too large to just explain away by other factors. But I think a lot of um, police chiefs and heads of law enforcement in California will point out that there are other factors that could be influencing the disparity. So one factor that police officers routinely cite is that they tend to police areas that have high crime rates more. And those tend to be, you know, lower income, black and brown neighborhoods. Um, Of course, you catch crime when you police it. So that's one reason why the crime statistics are really high in those neighborhoods. Another thing that uh, police officers will often cite as an issue in looking at these statistics is that the population of a city that you're looking at will be different from the commuter population. So the people that are driving through the city, for example. So in a city like San Francisco, where only 5% of the city is black, the low population could skew the numbers if there are a lot of black commuters. We actually looked at the data on commuters um, and we found that the difference isn't really enough, certainly not enough to explain the big discrepancies that we found in stop rates. 
And Dustin, how have law enforcement agencies critiqued the Ripper report? One of the, the changes that the California Police Chiefs Association has asked for, they're asking that in future years that Ripper data include a box so so agencies can indicate whether someone um, it, that is pulled over by an officer actually lives in the community um, where, where they were stopped. Um, and so their hope is that eventually that would make comparisons to census data more accurate. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, police officers, a lot of their criticisms are that they're responding to calls for service. And in a lot of cases, you know, some some of these um, stops are are people who are just driving down the, the road being stopped by police, but a portion of them are also service calls. And so police say there's factors like that, that they can't control the the, the types of calls that they're getting all the time. Um, yeah, so there's quite a few explanations, but I, you know, I should just note that from the outset, um, a lot of the big law enforcement groups opposed this law. They, they did not want this data gathered in the first place. Mm-hmm. Which says something in itself, right? Um, And Susie, in trying to figure out what's causing these big racial disparities, it seems really important to try to isolate structural factors from the officer's personal bias. The state tried to do that using a technique called the veil of darkness. How did that work and what did they find out? Yeah, so this is a really interesting technique that's been used by a number of different criminal justice analysts in the country. So what the RIPA board sought out to do was try and find a way to take out perceived race from the equation when it came to stops, to see whether officers' perception of race was influencing who they were stopping. And they did that by comparing stop rates for people during the day um, to stops of people at night. I'm really simplifying what they did because it's like a pretty complicated data analysis. But basically, the idea is at night, it's a lot harder to tell what race a person is when they're driving, especially um, because it's dark and you can't really see their face. And what they found was in the nighttime, the disparity between black and white stop rates actually got smaller. So perceived race is playing a role apart from, you know, whether somebody's in a certain neighborhood or whether, you know, they have a broken taillight or other factors that police might be trying to say are also correlated with race. Now, Dustin, you mentioned this data can be useful to actually making improvements in local enforcement agencies. Both police reform advocates and local agencies, including SFPD, have considered banning something called pretextual stops. Can you explain what that is? So a pretextual stop occurs when an officer pulls someone over for a minor traffic violation, say, tinted windows or um, a busted taillight or um, an air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror, uh, something you know, kind of relatively minor that is used as the grounds for the traffic stop. And then from there, the officer will search the person or um, use the stop to create a basis to, for some other type of infraction um, and, and to find a reason to detain the person. And uh, it, we've seen quite a few um, progressive advocates pushing to get rid of these types of stops, to ban them outright. Um, in San Francisco, Police Chief Bill Scott, he has proposed a policy that would pretty dramatically limit these types of stops. They could still cite people, but they would have to either uh, mail them a ticket or put a ticket on their parked car. They couldn't stop them while they were moving for those types of violations. Um, LA has also passed a policy on this. Um, LA was actually the first to, to do so. San Francisco is still considering its policy. Um, 
Um, in LA, the policy is that officers have to record into their body-worn camera the reason that they are stopping someone um, for a pretextual reason and the grounds that they have to, to suspect that there might be some sort of more serious violation. Um, so those are just two examples. And we've also seen a push for, uh, for the legislature to revisit this. There was a bill this year that would have done something similar and limited the types of minor equipment violations that cops could pull people over for. That bill um, actually died a couple of weeks ago in the legislature, and it died after pretty broad opposition from law enforcement groups like the State uh, Sheriff's Association. And they argued that those types of stops are pretty uh, important for them in their ability to do things like get illicit guns and drugs drugs off the streets. Um, so, so far, um, police reform advocates have had a pretty hard time getting traction with those types of policies, at least outside of the big blue cities. Does this kind of give a verdict on how successful implicit bias training is? You know, we know that implicit bias training has already been happening in law enforcement agencies before this report came out. But there's still a lot of issues, clearly. That is exactly the complaint that I heard as I reported the story and talked to police reform advocates. Um, there has been this type of training in police departments um, going back quite a few years, I mean, close to a decade in some areas. And the numbers are the numbers. Things have gotten worse in a lot of big cities, a lot of the big counties. Police will note, however, that the overall number of stops is down in a lot of places. Um, but again, this underlines the complaint of a lot of reform advocates who say that just cha changing the type of training you're giving officers, having a policy saying that you don't allow, you know, biased policing, that they're saying that really just scratches the surface. If you're not going to do things that really limit the actions officers can take by prohibiting pretextual stops or by passing policies that limit the types of search and seizures that officers can um, engage in after a traffic stop, Without doing those types of things, reform advocates say that RIPA is pretty toothless in its ability to, to stop profiling. Dustin, Susie, this is such an important story. Thank you so much both for talking to me about it. Yeah, thanks so much, Cecilia. Thanks for having us. Dustin Gardner covers the state capitol, and Susie Nielsen is a data reporter at The Chronicle. You can find their project about racial profiling at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. It includes helpful data graphics by our Chronicle colleague, Nami Sumida. Thank you to Nick Eilerson and King Kaufman for the production help, and to you for listening. <laughs> 